1: we have Gabe De Silva on the call. Gabe is, this is, this is going to be a treat. We get to talk a little fix and flipping and some other things, but if you haven't heard about Gabe, he is fostering probably the biggest fix and flip community on Facebook that you can find. And, and there's a ton of great content there. So make sure you look up fix and flip foundation on Facebook, and then you going to go by that moniker, even for your training and, and other things you offer. But Really appreciate your time, Gabe, but what is your primary website if people wanted to kind of find a central place for some of your links?
2: Yeah, the the hub is gabedasilva.com, my name, uh, com Gabe. And if you go there, you'll find uh, links through to a lot of our stuff, our socials, um, the free content that we've created over on YouTube. It's all linked there. So that, that's essentially my hub.
1: Oh, Great. So let's let's start things off. I, mean, like, I, I really am always curious. How did you start to get into this flipping game? Mm-hmm. And don't tell me it started with HGTV or something.
2: <laughs> no, it didn't. I'm one of the few that <clears throat> I started in the trenches. So unlike the HGTV um, wannabe crowd, right? <laughs> and I say that uh, from a place of love and compassion. Uh, that's not meant to be derogatory. That's how a lot of people get their start. I was of a different elk. I grew up in the business. So my dad is a first generation um, builder, You know, started with plumbing, masonry, all that stuff and worked his way up to uh, building new construction. And so I grew up in and around the business as a kid, kind of looking in over his shoulder as he's reviewing blueprints and making calls and, and proposals and things like that with vendors. So subconsciously as a kid, you're picking a lot of that stuff up, although you don't realize it. Uh, I later go on to uh, have a career in corporate, which absolutely sucked uh, and transitioned into entrepreneurship in the food space. Did that, um, loved entrepreneurship, didn't love food and found myself ultimately in real estate. And uh, we do a lot of different things, but primarily the stuff you know, you're talking about is, is fix and flip that that's what our core competency is. And again, it kind of ties back to what I grew up in as a, as a kid.
1: Sure. You know, it's interesting that everybody, a lot of the people that I run into that do fix and flipping or, or they aspire to do that. You know, I, I joked about HGTV and, and, and the DIY network and stuff like that, but it does spur a lot of interest in this. Unfortunately, there's a misconception that they can, they can themselves do it in 30 minutes or less. Yeah. Um, but um, what what have you been, if somebody was looking to get into fix and flipping for the first time, where would you suggest they begin?
2: Well, there's so much <laughs> content, right? Like even us, we have one of the most powerful things I did to kind of combat that was I actually hired a videographer to shadow me for six months. And we created a docu-series that shows people it's free. It's on YouTube. It's called The Build. Uh, you can look it up. It's on my channel. And it's 16 episodes and it's the real deal, right? It's not something edited for TV, which as you guys already know, HGTV and DIY, that's all super edited. Um, the realities of what it takes to do this full time. We did a really, what I think is a really good job of capturing that with our, uh, docu series. And so I send people there all the time. I don't, um, Look to monetize on that content it's there, and when people are new to the game and they don't necessarily have a marketing budget or or if they're just unsure, they're not even sure if this is what they want to do, they want to know like is what I see on TV what really happens in the field? The answer is obviously no, um, mm-hmm. but if you want to see what really happens in the field, um, I send them there and and that's where I, I like to have people start
1: sure so you know I think a lot of the uh, people when they especially when they get into Fix and flipping the first time, their their natural inclination is to see if they can find anything directly off the MLS. Is that where you're finding your your opportunities, or do you uh, house hunt with uh, with the yellow letters and a few other things?
2: <laughs> so when I started, so I, I've been in this space for six years. Um, when I started, you could pick deals off MLS. The competition wasn't as fierce, right? And Competition isn't meant to be the way people interpret it, right? Like it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, but I say that only to say like early on, it was there and it was easy to find. And, you know, almost despite all your missteps, you could still find opportunities. Here, you know, fast forward to today, uh, especially in the midst of this um, supply-demand, you know, um, mishap Um inequality, we'll call it, right? There, there just isn't the opportunity. There aren't as many opportunities as there were then. Mm-hmm. So that means that like, you have to work a little bit harder to find the deal. Not to say they're not still there. Uh, they're the exception. If you find a deal listed on MLS, like that's the exception. The rule is you have to market for your own stuff. You have to go off market. You have to go direct to seller. But again, like just recently with a handful of my students, We were running into this thing. How do we find deals? How do we find deals? There's no deals, right? I kept getting the same feedback. I said, listen, guys, like everything works if you work it, right? What worked? Go back to the beginning. What worked then? Try that. And then small pivots, small, right? So I went in and I mined our local MLS for opportunities and found stuff. There's still stuff there. It's just less of it. So- Again, I think everything's got to be done in parallel. Don't ever be a one-trick pony. Don't depend solely on MLS. Don't depend solely on organic. Don't depend solely on uh, yellow letters. But you know, run those things in parallel. So when one's hitting and the other's not, you're still in business.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, that's that's a good advice, especially uh, not relying on re- one resource. Um, would you say though that uh, it would be good to kind of? Uh, perfect one of those channels first before you start to diversifying or or do you suggest going two or three channels right off the bat?
2: no I so what what I actually teach is you need a foundational marketing effort. whatever that campaign or effort is, that's the foundation upon which the pyramid is built. and usually whatever that thing is, depending on where you're starting, if you don't have a big marketing budget, you know that thing's not going to be Facebook ads, that thing's not going to be um, buying off uh, Z buyer or, or like one of those zoo type sites, right? Like Those are things that require a little bit more cash to implement. If mm-hmm. you have um, limited funds on the front end to do your marketing, your stuff's going to be more cold call, like guerrilla style marketing um and then build that foundation with that marketing effort before you start layering on other things and those other things that you layer on envision the pyramid for those that are watching this on video I'm, I'm 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 making a pyramid with my hands you work your way up to the top of the pyramid where the more costly marketing efforts are but that baseline that foundational marketing effort get that one in place get that thing working for you ours is organic so it's it's really no cost um time obviously there's a cost uh there's a value for your time but we do a lot of our organic outreach, and that's our foundational marketing effort. And frankly, it outperforms all our paid stuff three to one anyway. So if you know, if I were to give people any advice with regard to deal flow to filling the pipeline, it's like get out there. Like get out there, start networking, start talking to people, start presenting yourself as a home buyer.
1: Yeah. No, I, I can't stress that enough. That that's another piece of great advice. If anybody would take one piece. I get people asking that all the time is if they don't have any marketing dollars where do they begin? Well, the obvious thing is to build that network. Join your local networking group, get into the RIAs, get into and if you don't have a local REA, start one. I mean, it, it's it's a, it's amazing how little cost some of that stuff can be for you and your network. You're not meeting one person, you're meeting one person who happens to know 10 other people or a hundred other people, you you got to build that network.
2: Mm-hmm. Start that RIA. Oh, <clears throat> what a powerful piece of advice. If if it doesn't already exist in your market, be that guy or gal, be that focal point around which these other folks will gather. That's how massive opportunity will find you. Um, so I, I love that. I encourage people to do that. If I have students outside of our market, that's where I uh, sure. always tell them to start.
1: Sure. So, you know, as people are looking at these properties and trying to find the opportunities, you know, this is going to be kind of a pretty deep conversation. What I'm about to ask you next. And I'm, before we do, I want to remind everybody to make sure you check out that Fix and Flip Foundation community on Facebook and become a part of that. Um, and uh, I think your students are pretty active there helping each other out too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The resource, the value exchange, when you get a bunch of active investors together in a safe space where everybody's kind of working together to lift one another up, you see massive value exchange resources and like the stuff we're about to dig into. A lot of it's there, but I'm happy to share here um, as much as we have time to.
1: Yeah. So that does lead me into like how people would run their numbers. And this is where I see a lot of. First-time fix-and-flippers really get into some trouble. So, how, how do they? How should they run their numbers, and what are some of those things they should account for? Yeah. So, and so I know that's a uh, big question. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I I ha- so <clears throat> I'm fortunate in that we work with people all over the country. So I don't have my like right when you're the hammer, everything looks like a nail. Answer for New Jersey where we operate because that like through and through, I know those numbers, right? We've been in this market long enough. I can already look at something and just visually tell what it'll cost. But when I'm working with folks from all around the country, I have to start thinking about what's it look like in their market. And it's drastically different. So what I encourage people to do is, well, from a, like a practical standpoint, it's gotta be visually, um, not just appealing, but you have to be able to look at something and cleanly identify what's what. Like, what are these line items? What are these things going to cost? Like, what what are the line items even? So, I send folks to a house flipping spreadsheet. Uh, it's a it's a big Excel model. He's actually taking it online now. David Robertson built this thing out. Uh, he started his business about the same time I started mine. It's an amazing resource. Um, he's a great dude, and he puts this thing together that like essentially captures all the costs you could possibly imagine incurring on any rehab. We're talking a cosmetic rehab all the way to a new construction, inclusive of site work. So there you've got your kind of your model to work within. Like that takes a lot of stress off already because now you know you're working within this one worksheet inside these individual line items. So now what numbers do you populate into those line items to start figuring out your costs? Well, there's a handful of different ways to do that. You want to get super, super solid numbers. You go local, you go to the groups, right? Our group or one like it, and you just start talking to people in your market who are getting bids right now for the type of stuff you want to have done. And then you ask them to share those numbers with you. That's about as true as it's going to get. But Mm -hmm. let's say you're doing some front end analysis and you don't necessarily need to get that that deep in the weeds. Well, you can go using the data that Dave's built into the house flipping spreadsheet. You can start there, or you can go to the, I've actually got it behind me for those that are watching and seeing it on video, right? The book on estimating rehab costs by Jay Scott for bigger pockets, like this thing, we're actually contributors to this book. And we gave Jay a lot of our New Jersey based numbers, just like other investors did from all around the country, So you can go in here and you can see what it costs to hang a sheet of drywall all over the country, right? Mm -hmm. Like the numbers are here too. Mm -hmm. So again, you start with the the baseline numbers that are already populated in the worksheet. You tweak them accordingly with the stuff that's in this book. That's kind of like geographically um, appropriate for where you are. And then you want to get even like tighter numbers. Start talking to people that are in your market right now, doing the thing you're looking to do and ask them what they're getting bid. And Mm -hmm. that's how you get really good numbers on your stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not rocket science. It's, and you got to stay on top of this stuff, especially right now. Like at the time of this recording, we're coming out of this like COVID pandemic, dealing with supply chain issues that have driven lumber prices up three to 400%, you know? So you need to know like in real time, what's happening in your market. Cause here I'm paying 300% more for lumber right now, but that's not true closer to the mills. Right up towards Canada, there's folks paying a lot less than that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's a that's a loaded question, and that's like as good an answer as you're going to get, unless you got the worksheet right in front of you and you're doing the stuff we're talking about. Um, and again, like I said, get into a community of other active investors and ask them what they're spending, ask them what they're paying for stuff.
1: So you know that does lead me to my next question about when you when you're selecting a property to rehab. Uh, how is how important is it and how do you select that property to make sure that there's enough ceiling there for you? Mm-hmm. You know, I know that you have, you, you, it's that old adage, you don't want to be the most expensive property on the block.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, so on the buy side, we, like, you know, your money's made when you buy, right? And then that profit is realized when you complete the project per the plan, but if you mm-hmm. bought wrong, it doesn't matter. If you bought wrong, you're about to work for free for three, six, 12 months, depending on the scope of the project. Uh, and nobody wants to do that. So, I mean, the money's made on the front end. You got to buy it at a discount. That's just, if the seller's telling you that they're, they're willing to sell to you because they want to circumvent commissions, like that's not a deal, right? Like They're just trying to not pay 5%, 6%, depending where you are in the country to a realtor, that's not a deal you have to be buying a deal where their motivations are deeper than that where they need to go somewhere they're in a hurry they, they've got some other sort of underlying issues that you can help resolve for them so you make your money on the buy side um, what I would say on the sell side is look at what other look at what other investors are putting out right look at the product that's being brought to market where you're about to do this project and then just do whatever the next Up, home is right. Say you're about to bring in our market a 500 or a 550 house is pretty common, right? So if Mm -hmm. you have a 550 out sale, right, go look at the comps in the sevens. See what their fixtures and finishes look like, and then try and mimic some of those. I'm not saying build a 700 house or a 750 house like in place of a 500 or a 550. But if you want to be the best house at that price point, just Steal a little bit from the 700 or the 750 house, right? Like, spend the money where it matters. Look at the fixtures that they put in. Don't go to Home Depot or Lowe's and get the off the shelf crap, right? Order off Wayfair. Get something that's just that little bit nicer that'll differentiate your property from the other. And that'll be, um, and and that'll go a long way in getting you to sell out from under them, right? You might not get more money necessarily, maybe you'll get a bit more but ideally you get yours sold quicker and then velocity of money. You get to go to work a lot faster. So um, yeah, I I think that was a good point, right? Like don't be the nicest, right? I'm using air quotes house on the block in the sense that you over-improved, but go and grab the handful of things that matter.
1: Sure. So, you know, that leads me right into uh, what are some of those things you've seen lately that are best bang for your buck? Some of those little upgrades that uh, might make a big difference.
2: Yeah. Trim. I mean, I argue that trim and tile sell a house. So in my experience, when I want to sell that 500, 550 house, for example, in our market, I'll go look at the 700, 750 house and I'll look at what they did in the way of trim and tile. And I'll go and snag a couple of those things. Like if there's some really great mosaic or inlay in the shower stall, Right, don't just go with the traditional cheap glass Home Depot tile. Like, if they spent a little bit more and they did something, you know, significantly nicer, uh, implement that. Right, with, with regard to trim, um, shiplap. Right, now we're going back to the HGTV stuff. People are loving shiplap. They're loving matte black with uh, stark, like white uh, things. Like that have gone a long way for us. We finish all our closets. We don't just sell people an empty box, right? They walk into a closet, they can't envision what's going on, what's going on in there. Like, so we do a custom built-in out of MDF in all our closets, in all our houses, at all our price points. This is not a budget killer, you know? And what it does is it shows people that somebody cares. Somebody thought this through. This gives it that added little design flair. And to be fair, we have a designer, right? We give our um, canvas to the designer and we say, Hey, this is the house. This is the price point. Give us those little pops of flair, right? Mm-hmm. We're not designers and we shouldn't be as investors. That's not your job. Uh, your job is to uh, buy houses and, and raise capital, right? Buy right and raise capital. Um, put the people who are better than you at that thing in that position to succeed and then empower them to do it and, and let them make those decisions. So again, I advocate for that highly, uh, we have designers that do a lot of that, um, do all of that. They do all that selection for us.
1: Oh, Trim is one of those things that we've learned too, is that, um, you know, you're, you're picking up an older house and it's been painted a dozen times, but the trim has never been replaced. So, you know, there's little over splashes and stuff and trim is relatively an inexpensive thing to replace, but having that clean, freshly painted walls and then the nice white, new trim, it really, it really looks, it just makes it look so much better.
2: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It goes a long way. It's just clean. At the end of the day, you see a lot of those cosmetic rehabs and they just don't look clean, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. to your point, it's paint on top of paint on top of paint, right? Layers and layers of, of stuff. It's not cohesive. So yeah, spend that little bit. Like I said, we're not killing the budget with this stuff but it's the differentiator. It's the reason we, we pre-sell about 60% of our stuff. Like there's a reason it's our work product has gone on to speak for itself. At this point, people know what to expect in a DeSilva Homes home. We also brand all of our projects. We don't flip under one, two, three main street LLC. We flip under the home builder brand. And -hmm. that's another piece of advice for folks that are out there that are getting started. Like you know, quickly step into that role. Don't just be any flipper, you know, one and dones under the name of that address, right? Like 123 Main Street LLC. It's a sole purpose entity. It buys this house. You do a, you cut corners, you do this cosmetic rehab, you sell it and you run, right? Like that's not a business model, but that's, that's very transactional. So to make it relational and to make this thing scalable, like you're a builder, right? Like Brand it accordingly. Put the sign in front of the house. People don't want to buy houses from flippers. They already know what to expect. So uh, they buy houses from builders. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good point too. So one of the things that we've experimented with lately is that... Um, and it sounds like you uh, you're you're kind of doing something a little different than we are. Is that when I pick up a house and that we we need to do any kind of flipping, we will test the market a little bit. Uh, we'll we'll buy we'll get the house, and then do like a very fast cleanup and try to get it on the market as fast as possible, even if it's below that that area's market value, to see if we could just do a quick sale as is, and then we let the market essentially dictate. What we should do next? If it doesn't sell right away, then we know that we have to go in for a deeper rehab. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. So, uh, I I'm not opposed to that model. Honestly, the wholesale in in our market—that's what we're doing. Uh, In some scenarios, like where demand is so crazy, and you manage to lock up a deal that's in a super sought-after market, uh, velocity of money comes into play. Like. I could mm-hmm. make less but do it faster and then turn those funds around and redeploy. Uh, so we wholesale as well. We'll take the deal down. we'll have it modeled as if we're going to do it and we'll already start pre-selling it with renderings and you know the floor plans. We'll have the designers um, work up a material schedule. we'll have the architect do the layouts in the in parallel, we're doing exactly what you guys are doing, which is testing the market, putting it out there. Um, what we've found is in this you know this last 12 months, or more now people are willing to pay a premium home has become like super important to people and they're willing to pay the premium to do the work themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we clean it out and, uh, we make it walkable mortgageable and then we put it on MLS as well. And then yeah, we've had a a bunch of really great wholesales.
1: Sure. So, you know, this is always something that's always intrigues me is, is when you get the, you're, you're starting your rehab and your project Uh, how do you manage that project? I mean, you got a lot of people coming and going and, and do you have like a template or, or here's a list of things that need to be done? How do you manage this project Mm -hmm. at the level that you are?
2: Yeah. So to systematically build and scale an operation that's not you dependent, which is, you know, that's when it stops being um, a job and starts being a business. You have to get systematic. You have to put processes in place. And so, and, and what systems are just fancy words for lists. So mm-hmm. all I did was create a list. And over the first you know couple of years, everything I did, I wrote it down and started to see chronologically things are happening in a certain order. That's your process right there. So we've gone on to really beef that out. And so it's like we call it our um, rehab milestone template and we have a series of them depending on the scope of the project you know our new construction milestone template is 60 something steps like it's a really robust list of things that have to happen in the order you know they should be happening in also we've got something we call the trade tracker it's the order of operations uh, for the tradesmen, for your vendors, like in what order do they come in? Where does your framer, where does your mason, where does your electrician, where does your painter, right? You're not going to paint a house before you frame a house. But a lot of people don't know that. They don't know the order. That mm-hmm. one's actually pretty intuitive, but you know, they don't necessarily know the order of operations. So we work from those. Those are the beating heart of our operations division. And so our in-house project manager reports to the office where The whiteboard that he works from that's tracking his progress on all his individual projects. Right over that whiteboard are these trade tracker and milestone templates blown up and laminated because they're that important. They are, like I said, they're the beating heart of our operations division and they should be the beating heart of everybody else's. If they don't have a variation of that in their organization, it's a huge miss because, like, how many times are you gonna make the same mistake? Before you say, wait a second, there's a system here, like this thing needs to happen in this order. So we're not spending this money or wasting this time again. Um, And again, that's all available. I I share all that in our group. So if folks go to the group there, they'll see it's actually in the files section. It's not, it's proprietary in the sense that we gave it a name, but I encourage people to R&D, right? Rip off and duplicate, Mm. take the document, brand it accordingly, and put it on the wall in in, in your office.
1: Sure. No, that's that'd be a great resource. We we have been using uh, an online tool. I I think everybody's familiar with Asana, but uh, a tool like that. I guess ClickUp is another one. Nifty is another one, where uh, but you essentially can collaborate on the lists. And we've we've been able to use it to the point where you know when uh, uh, some of our contractors have gotten used to it. if, if i need electrical work done I, I essentially assign the electrician to that task and they can they we can collaborate and discuss the discuss that item right there in that tool and then when the when the contractor's done they can even take a snapshot and send it into asana so i can can mark it done so yeah that it, it, it definitely that those type of tools really have made things a lot easier for us
2: yeah the software operator like software for slack right for inner inner team communication is is powerful uh to the tune of the stuff you're talking about like the co-construct and the builder like builder trend there's so many asana and monday and and there's tools out there like i i advocate for the use of those in parallel um and and uh, it's it's about the who not the how necessarily like who's going to be your point person on that thing we got to a point where we realized we needed an admin to drive all the administrative and logistics but then we needed a project manager to hold tradesmen accountable and so Great. you know those two people working in parallel in a tool like the ones you're talking about is is key i mean that's how you scale just plain and simple it's the only way you scale and keep your sanity
1: sure yeah <laughs> so you know with 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 covid and everything how how has that changed your business or is things going back to normal
2: so early on in COVID, we stayed the course. We had deals under contract. We didn't bail. Uh, a lot of folks, like here's an example, right? We were getting one or two wholesaler emails every day. Every other day, we're getting these emails. Over the course of a month, as we get the, you know, the pandemic hits, those emails just stop flowing. I'm like, where'd all these guys and girls go, right? For us, we had deals under contract. I've never retraded. In all my years doing this, COVID hits, we don't know where the market is going. I approach my sellers and say, Listen, I've never done this. I'm asking to retrade. I'm asking for a 10% haircut on these because that's where the majority of the economists think the market is going to go. But frankly, nobody knows. But if, like, I'll honor my commitment to buy these houses from you if you'll, you know, give us a 10% discount. And you know what? They did, right? And then we buy the houses, and 30 days later, we're selling these things on MLS for way more than we ever anticipated because the market like rebounded in 30 days. And so those that stayed the course generated more momentum and kept going while those who put their head in the sand like just survived. If they did that, you know, a lot of them didn't even do that. So we thrived like my circle, the guys and girls in my world that, you know, continue to operate through COVID just pivoted where they needed to and kept going. We had our best year ever. And so did a lot of people in my circle. It's, it's hard to believe because there's so much pain in the market. Right. And I'm, and I'm compassionate. And I understand that like not everybody had the best year ever, but we, Mm -hmm. we did right. And, and a lot of people in my circle did because like they just stayed the course, um, knew how to pivot worked in parallel worked in conjunction with others to figure out solutions and just thrived and so here we are a year a little over a year later coming off our best year ever and now scaling into an even different space right like ready to take advantage of what's happening in these different asset classes Commercial took a beating right retail took a beating um Main Street is dead, you know, right? You don't have to look very far. Just go downtown in your local town, and you'll see, right? Do you not see a ton of vacancies? You know, this is opportunity, and so mm-hmm. that's where we are now. We're transitioning our value add construction-heavy approach to single family rehabs. We're transitioning that into the commercial space uh, because if you can flip a house, you can flip an office building. Frankly,
1: sure. You know, uh, we we've covered a lot of ground here, and I'm hoping you're going to do. One last uh, couple things here for us. But again, to remind everybody house flipping, uh, the Fix and Flip Foundation. I'm sorry, I, I wrote down that house flipping spreadsheet and I read that instead. The Fix and Flip Foundation, make sure you check out the Facebook group. Um, but uh, I, I always like to give people like an actionable item, like one actionable item that they should do right after you're listening to this show. What is that one actionable item? If they want to get into fix and flipping, what would you tell them that they have to do?
2: If they're new in their journey, the best place to start is YouTube University. And I know it's kind of cliche, but go to YouTube, type in the build and watch those 16 episodes, right? Like whatever you're binging on on Netflix right now, put that on pause. And if you want to get into the fix and flip game, go watch the build. Like I said, we don't monetize on it there aren't even ads on it, frankly. You just watch it and just say, wow, like this is what it actually looks like to do this day in and day out. I'm game or I'm not game, right? You'll quickly know. This is a very self-selecting business, right? Like uh, you'll flip a house and if you do really well, you'll likely flip more houses. If you don't do well, you'll go back to doing whatever it is that you do full time. Mm -hmm. So I say, go there first. If you're new to your journey, uh, new in your journey, if you're a little bit further along and you've done um, a couple of deals. Uh, we have stuff outside of the fix and flip foundation. We've got, uh, some courses and some other things that like I can introduce folks to, depending on where they are in their journey. Uh, we host a mastermind for, uh, guys and girls that have been in the game for a while that have, you know, scaled bigger businesses. So there's a lot of resources, just, um, kind of find your way into our world, the fix and flip foundation world, and kind of look there and see what resonates with you. And, uh, I'm always available. I still, uh, right? I'm active on all the social medias at real Gabe De Silva. That's my handle. And that's me um, responding to messages. So I'm happy to communicate back and forth with your audience. Shoot me a message. Let me know what you're working on, what market you're in. Uh, I probably have resources that I can share with you, or I'd love to invite them to the Fix and Flip Foundation group uh, on, on Facebook. That's a great place for people to kind of, you know, a community for them to interact and, and, and start to get some momentum in the end. Like, you have to take action. you need to start generating some momentum. So do something, anything. Just take action in the direction you want to go.
1: Yeah, I, I can't recommend your series enough. In fact, you know i i I've had a couple people tell me, uh, you know, that they don't have time to watch a lot of that content, and then mm-hmm. and then I give them a hard time because i I saw on Facebook that they had just finished binge watching whatever episode of some series. Yeah. You, you people have the time for this. Come on, yeah. if you're serious about it, go watch the build and 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 uh, get some foundation. Mm. Thank you. So yeah. w- with with that, um, I, we're gonna probably wrap things up here. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one call of action here is if you know somebody that is thinking about getting into fix and flipping, I, I ask you to hit pause and share this. Episode to them right now because what Gabe has given us here is a a flipping one oh one and I really want this episode shared out to those people who uh, would or are even considering doing this flipping. Mm-hmm. But um, my last question to you, Gabe, is if uh, I we covered a lot of ground here, but uh, there's got to be a question you wished I would have asked you here today.
2: Hmm. Uh, so it's good. It's actually a question I close my interviews with and I ask other people, right? What did you used to believe that you no longer believe about a thing? So what did you used to believe about real estate investing that you no longer believe to be true? Uh, you know, you can slice that question up a whole bunch of different ways. What did you used to believe about entrepreneurship that you no longer believe to be true? It's a sign that people are growing and learning. Uh, so. I'd ask myself, what did you used to believe about the business of real estate before you got started that you no longer believe? And I no longer believe that we have any limitations in the way of resources. Uh, At the beginning, it's deals and money and everybody can't figure out how to get either and they're handcuffed and and they just can't get out of their own way. The reality is uh, resourcefulness trumps resources every day of the week. And if you think you can't get deals, you can't find deals, and you can't get dollars to do those deals, you're right. You won't find the deals. You won't find the dollars. But if you realize that you are more resourceful than you give yourself credit for, you'll find the deals and the dollars. I used to believe that it was a lack of resources. I've come to realize it's a lack of resourcefulness.
1: Well, I can't ask for a better way to conclude this conversation. Thank you so much, Gabe. And I hope we can chat again sometime.
2: Thanks, buddy. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on.
0: This has been the REI Mastermind Network. You can already tell that we've made some changes and a few more are on the way. If you are interested in what we have planned, head over to patreon.com slash REI Mastermind and support the show today. Financial contributions are always appreciated along with a like, share, and review. It really helps us grow and reach more people with this valuable information. See you next time and tell a friend.